Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. I'm Kevin Ellis. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're going to do something today that has never been done on this radio station or anywhere else ever before. We're going to examine and try to understand the criminal indictment by the United States government of a former president of the United States. We're going to do this in a sober, analytical way, and we'll leave the politics of this situation for another show. Today we're going to focus on Tuesday's criminal indictment of Donald J. Trump, the third indictment he is facing. We will have a former former federal prosecutor lead us through this moment in history You can hear us live on the radio at AM 550, FM 96.1, FM 96.5 in Montpelier, online at WDEVradio.com and on the free WDEV radio app. It is Friday, August 4th, the day after a former president of the United States was indicted by a federal grand jury for trying to overthrow the presidential election, uh, well, deny the presidential election of 2020, which he lost to Joe Biden. Donald Trump has now been accused of crimes in three separate cities by three different prosecutors, and there is more to come. The former president has pleaded guilty, I'm sorry, has pleaded not guilty in all these cases, as is his right. Trump spent yesterday under arrest. He was fingerprinted. He was not handcuffed. He was released and spent the night at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, As a condition of his release, Trump must do the following. He must not violate any state or federal law. He must appear in court when demanded. He must sign an appearance bond. And he must not communicate with anyone involved in the case or who might be a witness in the case. Those witnesses, in another massive moment in United States history, could include the former Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, Trump's own lawyers, like Rudy Giuliani, and or his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, all of whom were interviewed by the federal grand jury and prosecutors. Those three people that I just mentioned at the highest levels of government are key players in this case, and their testimony to a federal grand jury will be used as evidence in the trial. If you would like to call us to discuss this issue, the number is 244-1777, as always, and my email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. So let's dive in. The United States versus Donald J. Trump. The former president was arraigned yesterday by a federal magistrate on four charges after being indicted by the grand jury for trying to overturn the election. In short, trying to stage a coup to take over the U.S. government. These charges take place as Trump is the front runner for the Republican Party to be the next president of the United States. There is nothing in law or in the Constitution, although there is one small caveat about insurrection, that prohibits someone from being president after being convicted of crimes. A conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit, impair, obstruct, and defeat the unlawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected and certified by the federal government is a violation of the law. 
a conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional proceeding at which at which the collected results of the presidential election are counted and certified, that would be a violation of the law. And a conspiracy against the right, and this is a key one, to have one's vote counted is also against the law. And those are the things that Trump is accused of. In short, the presidential campaign of 2024 and the trial of Donald Trump are about to collide. And it is entirely possible that former Vice President Pence and Trump could share a debate stage in August when Pence could be the star witness against him at the same time a federal judge has ordered Trump not to communicate with people like Pence. But but we get ahead of ourselves. When we come back, we are joined by Jerome O'Neill, a Burlington lawyer and former federal prosecutor, indeed the United States Attorney for Vermont, who deeply understands this process, has read the indictment and walk us through it. It's so we're we're gonna sort of take a breath here and remember that we're gonna go through the indictment uh, and we're gonna leave the politics to another show. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be right back. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. And we, I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And we're examining the historic and unprecedented indictment of former President Donald Trump. And we're going to stick with the indictment itself and the criminal process that is now enveloping Trump and the U.S. government. Our expert guest on all this is a lawyer at the highest levels of federal and state practice in Vermont. He has been a federal prosecutor. He joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1973 and was the U.S. Attorney in 1981. He's been in private practice in Burlington since then with a high-level practice with the, within the same federal system that will deal with the former president. His name is Jerome F. O'Neill, and he joins us now. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. I appreciate being asked to participate. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, the former president has been indicted by a federal grand jury for a second time. The first time was over his handling of secret documents around national security. And this week, the charge is a conspiracy to overturn the president, presidential election. You've read the indictment. Can you give us the 30,000-foot uh, explanation? I think there's a very straightforward paragraph, and I encourage anyone who has not had the opportunity to read the indictment. It's a little bit of legalese, but still, there's a lot of facts in there I think people would find interesting. But paragraph 7 encapsulates, I think, what claim is here. The purpose of the conspiracy was to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election by using knowingly false claims of election fraud to obstruct the federal government function by which those results are collected, counted, and certified. That's what the indictment is all about, which is the endeavor to try to put false electors, to have vice president to decline to certify all the various steps that are alleged in here are all for that very specific purpose of overturning the legitimate inclusion of the voters and the decisions that were to be made with the electors when the votes were when the electors votes were counted at the capitol okay now 
let's let's take you of course the former president uh, yesterday in front of a federal magistrate pleaded not guilty as is his right um can you take us into that courtroom yesterday you've watched this a thousand times uh what did the president go through i i said earlier before the break that he was he was not handcuffed he was fingerprinted um Take us into the courtroom and in front of that federal magistrate and tell us exactly what happens. Well, what, this is as close to a non-event as you can have, because this is either the person who appears, appears either because they have been arrested and brought in for what's called an initial appearance, or in the instance of Mr. Trump, he was summoned to appear. So he comes into the courtroom. He's there with his lawyer, and in this instance, what happens is, and it happens at every instance, which is the question is, what's the bail going to be? And in this instance, the government made no request for any kind of bail that he should have to put up. They don't view him as a flight risk. They didn't ask to have his passport held by the court or any of those things. And so it is just a question of going through what the considerations are as it relates to bail. How does he plead? Almost everyone pleads not guilty at this stage of the process, just a formality. And then what the court does is it goes ahead and notifies the individual there, if it has a date, as to when the individual should be back in front of the U.S. District Court judge, because this proceeding takes place in front of a magistrate judge who handles a lower level of matters than does the U.S. District Court judge. A magistrate judge, for example, doesn't try criminal cases. So the bail is set. He is free. Certain conditions are set forth, just very standard conditions. You're not allowed to commit any further crimes, of course, obviously. Not allowed to speak with people about the case. I mean, he has some people in his orbit who he will see who may be witnesses in the case, and he can talk with them. He just can't talk with them about anything to do with the case. And those for, those formalities can go quite rapidly, and then at that point he's released. Uh, in this instance, he was fingerprinted out of courtesy to him because there are so many photographs of him. There was no mugshot taken, just as it was not down in Florida. And then he's free to go. Uh, and of course, he pleaded not guilty, and uh, and all over the media, I'm hearing now his lawyers state what they what I what I believe to be the coming defense, which is this is not about his conduct. This is about his speech, and he had a right to say the things that he said uh, because he believed that, uh, despite the evidence that that the election was somehow stolen. Uh, this, do I have that right, Jerry? Is this boiling down to a, a kind of a free speech case? Well, he's going to try to make it that, and I understand that. That's good lawyering to try to find a defense and to get it out there so that the jury pool and everyone else hears about what this is and understands what the concept is. Now, there are two things that he has, I think, are potentially significant defenses he will try to assert. One is the one you just described, which is the First Amendment. I have the right to say this. And the second one will be reliance on the advice of counsel. That one will be a little tricky. Well, both of them will be quite tricky. Um, But as it relates to the advice of counsel, he's going to have some people who he 
no, no, you can't do this. So that's part of what the issue is. The free speech issue is you always have to distinguish in a circumstance like this by what someone says and what they do. And that's the distinction here. He can advocate all he wants to for overturning the election, for saying that the election was fraudulent. He can do that all he wants to. What he can't do is he can't participate in getting fraudulent electors. He can't participate in trying to get the vice president to ignore the statutory requirements for the duty and not certify the electors. So what the special counsel is going to do, they're going to focus on what he did rather than the First Amendment issues that he will try to claim. I mean, among other things, looking at the indictment, there are listed in the indictment, paragraph 11, for anyone who wants to look at it, eight different high-level people who told him that there was no fraud. I mean, these are people like his attorney general, uh, senior White House attorneys, the vice president, all sorts of people, so that that will be the, the other side of the free speech part where he says, well, I have the right to advocate this, and they are going to come in and testify that they told him no, that there was no fraud, and so therefore that is not a basis for his actions going forward, trying to have these fraudulent electors come in or to have the Jeffrey Clark step in as the attorney general and try to change the direction of what might happen here. Okay. Uh, you've read the indictment. So have I. Uh, it is 40-plus pages of, I must say, as a former journalist myself uh, who covered federal courts in Nashville, Tennessee, it is riveting reading. Uh, there's a line in there where he's talking to the vice president, Mike Pence, and, he, and Pence says, look, I can't do what you're asking me to do. And Trump says to him, according to the document, uh, he says, you're just too honest. And, and so I guess my question, Jerry, is, um, you know, you read, and this happens with all indictments, you read the indictment and you say, oh, wow, they have this guy dead to rights. Uh, try to put your defense lawyer hat on for a second and, and say, how would you defend this case? How would you attack the indictment? Well, we need to take a step back just for a second to the indictment itself. Sure. You're well familiar with this. And the way an indictment is crafted is it is based upon information that the prosecutor presents to the grand jury. The defense is given the opportunity to come in and make a presentation through the testimony of the person who might be charged, but it's really one-sided, and it's a relatively low threshold of proof, which is to say probable cause. So, And then the prosecutor draws up the entire document, gives it to the grand jury, and then goes over it with them and says, here's, I think, what the evidence has shown and so forth on it. And the grand jury votes what they call a true bill, which is what this document is. This document is very detailed. It, reading it, I agree with you. One would say, oh, you're not going to get out of this. However, trying to apply the, free, the First Amendment issues to it, the advice of counsel, those are probably the best defenses. Two of the counts in here are under a statute that was passed in about 2002 as part of the Sarbanes Act, uh, actually, uh, statute. And there's a lot of controversy in Washington, D.C., where these issues have been litigated in connection with the 
direction as to whether or not that statute really applies to this kind of conduct, that'll probably end up in the Supreme Court. So it's possible two counts of the four will get knocked out. The other two is highly unlikely. And whatever counts go to trial, it will be the defense trying to raise everything they can just to suggest that the, there is reasonable doubt as to whether or not President Trump committed the crimes asserted. Reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt. That's all that's going to be pervasive in the presentation made by the defense, including in their cross-examination. Jerry, I think it's important as sort of a public service here for us to explain to the listeners that how this process sort of uh, originates uh, it's important to remember that uh, in, in, in concert with the founding of the country and the writing of the Constitution, that a federal grand jury was actually a protection against overzealous government. Uh, it was a shield for citizens uh, so that their fellow citizens would, would hear the evidence and protect them from the king who would just randomly throw people in prison. Uh, can you explain the federal grand jury system for us? Sure. I, it might be helpful if I contrast it with the systems that are used in a lot of places, Vermont being, for example. In Vermont, if someone is charged with a crime, there's usually an affidavit put together by a police officer describing the conduct in some level of detail. That information is then presented to a judge together with a document called an information, which is a slightly different version of an indictment. It doesn't go through the grand jury. And the judge makes a determination as to whether or not the affidavit or affidavits state probable cause. In the federal system, to charge someone with a felony, which is any offense punishable by imprisonment for more than one year, it must be as a result of a grand jury indictment unless the person waives indictment, but that's a side story. So if you're going to charge someone with a felony, and these are all felonies, that information, the facts to it, must be presented to the grand jury. And as you say, it was originally for the purpose of protection of the individual from the king, so to speak. And so that's why we had grand juries. So we have grand juries, 16 to 23 people who sit and they listen for days, evidence, witnesses brought in, uh, FBI agents, individuals. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me the vice president testified there. And they testify and they provide information. And then the prosecution comes in with a document, such as the one here, hands it out to people and says, let's go through this. Let's, if you have any questions, any issues with respect to it. And then the prosecutor leaves the room and the foreperson of the jury leads grand jury, excuse me, leads the grand jury through a discussion, and they determine whether to vote what is called a true bill. And if 12 or more of the grand jurors vote in favor of a true bill, then you have the indictment which you have here today. Okay. Uh, and the allegation here, uh, sort of at the 30,000-foot level, is this was a conspiracy. And... That word, when it comes to federal law, carries a kind of special weight. Can you explain uh, what a conspiracy means? Sure. A conspiracy is an agreement between two or more people to commit a criminal act. Violation of the United States Code 
generally speaking, Title 18, but there's some other provisions as well. But it's an agreement, for example, you can have two people who decide they're going to rob a bank, and they will agree they're going to go ahead and rob the bank, and they will do what's called an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. You know, one of them will get a gun, another one will, you know, surveil the bank, another one will get a car or something, any one of those. So you have an agreement to rob the bank, you have an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. That's the crime right there. Right. Under HN uh, USC Section 371, they've committed the crime so that if for any reason there is enough proof to be able to establish what I've just said, that's a crime in and of itself, even though they never robbed the bank or tried to. If you're just joining us, our guest is Jerome O'Neill, the former U.S. attorney for uh, Vermont, and uh, he's been practicing law within the federal system for many, many years. Um, Jerry, I the, so the allegation is that there is a conspiracy, and and in the indictment, it is very clear that that the former president had meetings and multiple telephone calls. Uh, to try to, uh, well, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt to try to find evidence of the of the illegal uh, election fraud. Um, so, would that so he's talking to his vice president, he's talking to his lawyers. They're not named the uh, the co-conspirators one, two, three, four, and five. They're clearly Rudy Giuliani, his lawyer, and other lawyers involved in this case, uh, that's part of a conspiracy, just making those calls, it would seem to me. I don't think making the calls and asking the questions is part of the conspiracy. Okay. And the reason I say that is because, and I think Jack Smith, the special counsel, would agree with this, which is it's perfectly legitimate for President Trump to make inquiry, to say, what happened here? Are there, in fact, these missing boats? Did all these votes suddenly come in at 4 o'clock in the morning? Was there something that happened in the State Farm Center in Atlanta with respect to various votes? No, that's a great or, point. Yeah. Any of those. I mean, there's there's one where he claims that there were 100, I won't get the numbers right, but you'll get the idea, 180,000 mail-in ballots sent out in Pennsylvania and 220,000 were returned. Well, none of that's true. But it's legitimate for him to inquire about it. But once he is told that, no, these things are not true, and he then uses those to try to, for example, put together a slate of false electors to then try to be certified and have substituted for the electors the states have chosen, that's a whole different story. Because that isn't just asking questions. That is substantively trying to obstruct the proceedings that result in the transfer of power from one administration to another. Right. So the, yeah, so the effort, yeah, this, this requires an understanding of the electoral college, which narrows down our, uh, our, our expertise quite significantly. I, I, mm-hmm. I have some experience with this. The, the electors, uh, come from the states. They are sent to Washington. They are in a box. Uh, that was protected during the January 6th insurrection by some, uh, some wonderful, uh, congressional aides who spirited them away from the insurrectionists. Uh, but 
the, the, the allegation is that Trump, Giuliani, and others, uh, tried to have fake electors sent to Washington that the vice president would then deem legitimate in some way. Yes, precisely. In other words, what would happen would be that these electors who were selected in various states that Trump had lost, those would be sent to Washington and those and they would be sent in as the actual electors, which was completely untrue and fraudulent because the states had to meet in their individual states on December 10th and then vote their electors and then the electors at that point, as you said, they send in the electors' votes and they go to the vice president, they go into the Senate, they go to the vice president, and the vice president then, just as a matter of this is what he's required to do, goes through, counts up the votes and says who the winner is. But you can't go ahead and substitute a fraudulent state of electors just because you want to try to have someone else step in in place of those who were legitimately elected to the position and who voted. Jerry, the the next, let's talk about process here. Um, I think it's important for us to explain that this isn't, this was not, this charge was not brought by your run-of-the-mill prosecutor, uh, not even a United States attorney. It was brought by a special counsel named Jack Smith. I wonder if you can explain to us how Jack Smith came to be. Jack Smith was selected by the Attorney General Merrick Garland. He had, as reported, great faith in him for his independence, for his intelligence, for his capabilities. Jack Smith was working at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, as a prosecutor, when Merrick Garland brought him back and told him he would like to appoint him for this. The description is given to us by the Justice Department and Merrick Garland is that Jack Smith is an independent prosecutor. He conducts his investigations as he deems appropriate. He is answerable to the Attorney General in that the Attorney General can say, no, you can't charge someone, something like that. Supposedly, and I don't say that to suggest it's not accurate, there is no communication between the White House and Merrick Garland with respect to this. Merrick Garland is the ultimate authority, and Jack Smith has great independence to make decisions as it relates to who he prosecutes. Normally, it would be the U.S. attorney in a particular district. There are 94 districts and 94 U.S. attorneys. And with some limited exceptions, that U.S. attorney would make these decisions without having to consult or get the approval of the attorney general. In this instance, Jack Smith, when he's ready to go, what he wants to do, he must tell the attorney general what it is that he wants to do. And the attorney general can look at, for example, the draft indictment and say yes or no. But the role of the attorney general is, as described by the Justice Department, quite limited. I mean, Jack Smith is reportedly making decisions that have nothing to do with politics, have only to do with criminal investigation and what should be done. I've always thought, Jerry, that the role of the attorney general, uh, we argue about this politically in this country. Uh, the Trump, the Trump's defenders are saying this is a persecution. Well, Trump himself said this is a persecution uh, of a political enemy 
that the Justice Department's being weaponized. We're going to hear about this ad nauseum. Uh, and yet, I mean, the president appoints the attorney general, and yet we somehow have come to expect that the attorney general is somehow or somewhat independent of the political concerns of the White House. But th- there's gray there. Am I right? Yes, you're right. There is no statute that says that the attorney general is independent of the president, can't talk to the president, can't be influenced by the president. There are norms, however, and the norm is that the attorney general acts independently. The attorney general is the lawyer for the United States. The attorney general is not the president's lawyer. I mean, one of the lines that you hear, we we have heard many times from Donald Trump is that he is looking for the lawyer that his father had in New York, and that person was someone who could get anything done. Now he's later disbarred. But that's not who the attorney general is. I mean, President Trump was upset with his first appointment as attorney general because that person acted in ways that he didn't agree with on it. But that's what the attorney general is supposed to do. The attorney general is supposed to act in the interest of the United States, not to be following the direction of the president in terms of how he or she conducts themselves and not to be prosecuting someone because the president says, I think we really ought to prosecute this person. No, that's not what the attorney general should be doing. The attorney general should be making independent determinations as to whether or not prosecutions should be brought. Jerry, you were the United States attorney for Vermont in 1981, uh, and I can't help but ask you how uh, the world has changed between then and now. Uh, our, our tribal politics are uh, that you, you mentioned norms uh, around the Justice Department. Uh, if Donald Trump has done anything in this country, he has uh, helped change those norms by violating mostly all of them. Uh, some would say for the better, some would say for the worse, uh, and accusing the Justice Department of being a tool for a, a Joe Biden that's trying to take down Donald Trump. Uh, this We would not be having this conversation back in 1981, and I wonder if you could just reflect on how our world, both our uh, federal criminal justice world and our political world have changed since you were a U.S. attorney? Well, I think the biggest change that I can see is the change in the norm that we saw with President Trump. I think most presidents have respected the role of the attorney general. I'm not, that wasn't the case with Richard Nixon um, when he had John Mitchell involved in some of the wrongdoing that took place around Watergate. But overall, most of the presidents have respected the independent role of the attorney general. And certainly when it came to President Trump, uh, he didn't think that there was an independent role for the attorney general. It was quite clear that he thought that the attorney general, he didn't exactly use these words, but that was the practical effect, was his lawyer and was supposed to do what he, meaning the president, wanted him, the president, to do. And that's just very much contrary to the norm that has gone on fundamentally in this country back as far as any of us can remember. Uh, I, In watching some of this on TV yesterday, I noticed, uh, well, one of the reporters in the courtroom said that the chief judge uh, in the Washington 
D.C. District was in the courtroom. Uh, I noticed that the, the trial judge, the district court judge, her name is Tanya Chutkan, and she was appointed by Obama, uh, but that the chief judge, sort of her boss, was in the courtroom when Trump was being arraigned. Can you comment on that? And, you know, I think we're going to have a long list of historic firsts here, and I'm wondering if that was one of them. Well, I, I, my best guess is that the chief judge was there for either one of two or maybe for both reasons. One was, this is a very historic event. And so if you're the chief judge, you can sit on any proceeding you want to sit in on. Nobody's going to say you can't get a seat in there. And so he just wanted to be present and see what happened. Yeah. I mean, that's my best guess as to what it was. It's also possible the chief judge wanted to see for himself how the magistrate judge handled it. He wanted to see it so that he could later have a conversation with the magistrate judge and say, hey, you handle this very well, or he might have some suggestions for the magistrate judge. But I think that those are probably what the reasons are. I don't think there's anything more to it than that. Okay. Uh, Let's talk about uh, jail time, and then we have to go to a break. Uh, There are four counts uh, alleged in this conspiracy, uh, and – each of them carries multiple years in jail. Obviously, uh, he would not serve the maximum if convicted, probably. But this is serious, serious jail time. And again, we're going to see a lot of historic firsts here. But can you explain to the listeners what the penalties are if convicted? If I have done the math correctly, and one should never assume that, the total jail time in theory, and I want to stress that, is 55 years. Now, having said that, everyone should forget it because there is something called the Federal Sentencing Guidelines. And any time that someone is convicted and must be sentenced, the judges refer to the Federal Sentencing Guidelines for a determination as to what the correct sentence is. The sentencing guidelines are way too complicated to go through and try to do an analysis analysis right here now. But certainly under the guidelines, he could expect to do some serious time and the judge can depart up or down. And looking at the seriousness of this, at least one commentator I saw said, wouldn't be surprised if the judge, if he is convicted, does an upward departure given the nature of the offenses here. So he is certainly looking at and likely to get, if he's convicted of any of this, some serious jail time. Jerry, this is this is the third indictment of Trump. The first was by the district attorney in Manhattan. The second was by uh, this same prosecutor, Jack Smith. But that's going to take place in Miami around the uh, Trump's failure to return certain national security documents to the National Archives. And now in a superseding indictment, he's accused of obstruction of justice by scheming with his aides to erase the video uh, of them moving these documents around. And I wonder if uh, can we let's try to explain the differences in these cases. Well, the case in New York is one that involves his business and it involves the payment to the porn star with whom he allegedly had an affair. And there are claims with respect to New York business law that by making taking a deduction on those that he violated, he and his company violated uh, New York state law with respect to it. Um, that one was the first case, as you said. 
The second case is entirely unrelated to this present case, as you've indicated. It relates specifically to Mr. Trump having refused to return documents, reportedly having said, no, those are mine. I don't have to give those back. And then reportedly is charged in connection with this in the indictment with having to obstruct the proceedings. In other words, he gets a subpoena with respect to it, and he doesn't respond to it. He tries to hide the documents. So there's obstruction of justice in there, which is a very serious offense. And so you have that package, if you will, down there in the Southern District of Florida. And then you have this case. That case, which is to say the one in Florida, has nothing to do with him being president or while he was president. Everything in the current case, this is to say the one out of Washington, D.C., deals entirely with actions he undertook while he was president. I think the real question that that will be very interesting to see is which case gets tried first. And, you know, we also have the potential for the case in Georgia, but I think that probably, since it would be the fourth one if if he is indicted, will be the last one that gets reached or close to it. But the question really is, is this case going to be, meaning the D.C. case, go first? Um, There's certainly an indication that this case might be the first one to go. The New York case, the district attorney has said he's willing to hold off time-wise. So it's possible the Florida case could go first. But some of the pieces that I have seen suggest that this is the most likely case. This is to say the D.C. case with the recent indictment that would go to trial first. And I noticed that Jack Smith, Jerry, uh, is urging a speedy trial that the Trump and the Trump lawyers are saying uh, that they don't necessarily want a speedy trial because they need time to get their case ready. Obviously, there are political considerations that are going in here. We're 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 headed towards a presidential election. And I guess everyone's going to game out. Uh, how how they can adjust the schedule to 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 their maximum benefit, but uh, yeah, what do you who who decides what case goes first? Is it the chief judge? No, that would be a conversation likely between the judge in Florida and the judge in Washington D.C. Ah. Because the chief judge in Washington has no authority to tell the the judge down in Florida anything about how to go about it. So normally what happens is the judges get on the phone, they talk with each other and say, what does your schedule look like? What does this make sense? They don't always agree, but generally speaking, they can come to some kind of an agreement about which case will go forward first. Uh, Jerry, as we said, there's going to be a lot of historic firsts here. Uh, There already have been since Trump arrived on our scene in 2016 uh, the, the one that really stands out for me is the roles of people like Rudolph Giuliani, the former mayor of, well, a former, uh, I believe, deputy attorney general for the United States, uh, and yes. other lawyers and the advice and counsel that they gave Trump that that there actually was election fraud, et cetera, et cetera, and the lengths to which they pushed this uh, – I, I, you know, is there anything that most surprises you about this case, given your experience as a United States attorney? I'm surprised that those lawyers were allowed in the White House and were permitted to bend the president's ear, if you will. I mean, the president has his own counsel there at the White House. He's got lots of lawyers, smart people, 
if from what I've been able to read, they were all telling him there's no fraud. There's no fraud. Right. And then you have these outsiders like Rudy Giuliani, and then you have Sidney Powell, who even some of them have apparently referred to as being crazy. And you that crew coming in, and they are saying, the reason, from what I can see, the reason why they are permitted into the White House and why they get to bend the president's ear is because they're saying what he wants to hear. But the professionals who are employed by the federal government, they are not saying that. They are telling him, no, there is no fraud here. So I think that, you know, for example, on the advice of counsel defense, yes, he's got some people who told him it was okay, but he's got some other people who said, no, no, no. And those people, I think, will be very credible. Uh, There is some historic precedent here, and I'm talking about Richard Nixon and Watergate. Uh, Now, that was a situation back in 73, 74, in which the president was on his way to being impeached and was named an unindicted co-conspirator. Can you compare these two cases for us? Well, they're they're comparable in the sense that both of them allege wrongdoing by the president, obviously. And as it relates to Richard Nixon, there have been hearings in in the Senate and there had been grand jury investigations, which is why he was named as a co-conspirator. And in that instance, he very clearly resigned because he could see that he was going to be impeached and likely convicted otherwise. In this instance, we don't have any indication that, of course, President Trump is no longer the president. So there was no resignation to be had in connection with it. But there certainly is the criminal charges we see here as we could foresee were going to happen with respect to Richard Nixon. Uh, okay, let's try to <clears throat> get into the very dangerous game of sort of predicting what might happen down the road. Uh, it is possible here that a that Donald Trump could uh, be convicted of a crime, could be waiting to be sentenced, and at the same time could win the presidential election. Uh, as I said in the intro, there's nothing stopping him from serving as president after being convicted. And there's nothing stopping him from serving even if he's in prison. Uh, so where are we headed here? I mean, I, it's, you know, there's so many scenarios, but, uh, can you talk about the, there is an insurrection term that prevents you from being president if you were part of an insurrection, right? If you're convicted of being part of an insurrection or if you were impeached on the basis of an insurrection, yes. He is not charged with insurrection, however. There you go. So we are really in uncharted waters, aren't we? We we certainly are. I don't think anyone could ever have any doubt about that. I mean, there there are two things that could happen, uh, three things that could happen. President, assuming for purposes of conversation, the scenario you just described, where Mr. Trump is elected president again, and he has been convicted, and he was in jail up until then. He has, from what I read from credible news sources like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, indicated very openly that if elected as president, he will take whatever steps he can to prevent his prosecution from going forward or to have it set aside. For example, if there has been no conviction at that point, they haven't gotten to the trial of it, he would tell his attorney general, don't pursue this. 
whether the Attorney General or not would follow it remains to be seen, but Mr. Trump would probably pick someone who would. The other thing that he might try to do is to pardon himself. There is a lot of question as to whether or not he can do that or not. I have no idea. But he would certainly use whatever means he could to get himself out of this, either by stopping the prosecution or if he was convicted by trying to pardon himself. Uh, Jerry, what are we missing here? Uh, what question have I not asked? What are you, what are you, as you read this indictment and you read the press, what are, what's, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that this is a speaking indictment. Many indictments, you could take this 45 pages and put it into three pages if the special counsel had wanted to. But the special counsel wanted the world to see what the evidence was. Right didn't simply want to do a short indictment, but rather wanted to try to show this is credible. We have a basis for going forward, and here are the facts that support what our assertions are. Jerry O'Neill, you're very kind to join us. Uh, I think it's important that we really take a sober look at this uh, for historical purposes, and you're the guy to do it. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. Okay. Jerry O'Neill, coming up. On Vermont Viewpoint, that is, uh, we made history today uh, all over the country and right here in Waterbury. So uh, we'll be talking more about this. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and we're going to Washington, D.C. to join our friend Bob Nay to talk about all things Washington. Hello, Bob. Hey, Kevin. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, we just spent 45 minutes with the former U.S. attorney in Vermont discussing mm. the ins and outs of the Trump indictment. So we don't have to do that here. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I, but I wonder if you might share with us your takeaway, uh, f- from this. I mean, we face a whole lot of historic firsts coming up here, including the possibility that the star witness in this trial, Mike Pence, the former vice president, could be on a debate stage with his former boss uh, during a, a, a criminal case, among other things. What What's your takeaway? Well, you know, veering uh, from the legal side of this whole thing into the political side, which is fascinating, uh, a lot of ins and outs. But, yes, Pence could be on the stage. Pence has made some statements. We also don't know as this, you know, indictment continues and goes into the discovery and trial. We don't know, you know, what other uh, co-conspirators will say by that time, what will come down. And in particular, it's going to be really hairy for uh, Pence, you know, because he's made, again, some statements about, you know, Trump should have basically known better and they'll be on stage. Now, that's if Trump shows up, although. I'm looking at this, and I, I just I can't believe that Donald Trump uh, wouldn't show up. I understand his campaign people are telling him don't show up for the debates, but you know, knowing Donald Trump as we have seen him, I just can't imagine where 
somebody would say, you know, you're afraid. And he will no, I'm not. And I'll go up on the stage. So I, I think if he's still in the run at that time, that he would be up there. But the whole thing is going to be difficult. Plus, the other candidates, whether it's, you know, Scott or Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, uh, Nikki Haley, whoever they are, they're also going to have to dodge, obviously, or answer or answer and dodge the question about Trump, you know, and if he's convicted, uh, should he be sentenced? Uh, should he be running? So it's, again, going to be basically all about Trump. And unfortunately for the whole process, both primary and general, and the timing of these cases with, I think, another indictment to come yet, maybe in Georgia, then uh, this is going to basically drown out the campaign messages, not just, in fact, for the presidential, but probably for the House and Senate races. Our Democratic uh, senator in Ohio is saying nothing by the way, about this, Sherrod Brown at this point in time. Yeah. What do you make of that, Bob? Uh, Democrats from Joe Biden on down are, are conspicuously silent on all of this. What, what do you make of that? I've known Sherrod Brown literally my entire adult life, and he's not one that ever shies from anything. And that's a fact. He has shied from this because, you know, Ohio by eight points uh, is a red state. I don't think Sherrod wants into that. I guess the best answer could be, look, there's a court process here. I'm running about in the economy. And I mean, I think that's the tact that the candidate should take. But if Sherrod and the reason he's quiet on this, and again, he's normally very outspoken on anything, not afraid of anything. But, you know, why go down from Sherrod's point of view, I'm sure, why go down that rabbit hole of, you know, Sherrod Brown versus Donald Trump versus, you know, Sherrod Brown versus his opponent? Yeah. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Uh Bob, there, the Fitch Rating Agency, uh, this is, this comes under the category of it's really boring, but really important. The right. Fitch Rating Agency exactly. just downgraded the United States government from AAA to AA plus, citing, and I will read the, uh, let's see. Uh, citing the United States, let's see, a quote, a steady deterioration in the standards of governance. Tell us what that means. Well, it's how the govern the government functions, not only January the 6th, which, by the way, they looked at and how it was, you know, uh, handled, but also the governance between the the House and Senate and the White House and the parties. And, and a real quick note here, I went to uh, one of these ratings for the state of Ohio with my Democrat counterpart in the House and the governor himself, who was Republican at the time, Voinovich. And we sat together and we kept our rating uh, guaranteed because of just the cooperation factor. You don't have that with the feds. You know, they don't even sit together with Fitch, obviously, for the rating. So, Fitch has looked at not just the 32-some trillion in debt, but they have looked at January 6th. They've also looked at how the government gets along. And frankly, you know, there's fights internally within the political parties themselves, let alone one party to the other. So that that is a factor, how the, how the government runs. Things like, you know, the, the passports, which are delayed, for example, uh, by months and months and months. You know, these rating agencies just look at the entire government, the political side, but also – how the government operates. Uh, I would I would note uh, that that you mentioned Voinovich. He would be the former 
I would call him a moderate Republican George Voinovich yes. back in the day when Ohio yes. was a lot different than it is now. Yes. In fact, uh, uh, I was one of his campaign managers when he first ran for governor. No kidding. Uh, he was. Oh, yes. I was. In fact, I was the first person that endorsed him. He was considered a loser. Quote, Bob Taft was in the primary. It was all over with. I endorsed Voinovich. And uh, then after that, we got a few other people. Taft dropped out and it was all over with. Of course, Voinovich became a great governor for Ohio. He really, you know, uh, went right on to the Senate. I'm not sure today, though, in a Republican primary, uh, he's passed away now. I'm not sure that he wouldn't have a pretty big hassle in a Republican primary today, though. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Bob, uh, on in economic news, the, the U.S. economy added 187,000 jobs in July. The unemployment rate edged down to 3.5 percent. Uh, how do you, as the economy improves? Uh, can what does that take a tool a campaign tool away from Republicans as we approach elections? Well, it doesn't help Republicans, and of course, again, I don't want to beat this dead horse, but it doesn't help with Trump uh, being the you know focus in the election. Uh, Biden's people would like that, and the Republicans would like something else. But the economy is still overall. You know how these things run. It's the pocketbook and the wallet, and and so. Um, you know, I, I think it still is going to be an issue. Now, this is helping Biden a bit. We don't know what else will happen. Uh, but then again, the Fed's view of this is so kind of convoluted. I heard on the broadcast, your broadcast today, where the Feds are saying, but, you know, we're still concerned about basically people being paid too much. And I thought, uh, well, those families aren't too concerned with it. So if inflation can tamper down food prices and gas in particular, you know, construction costs, housing, if that can can go down, that's definitely going to help the Biden administration. No question about it. If, in fact, though, it goes up, it doesn't matter, particularly the job rate or how many people got hired. If inflation will jump again for some reason, then it's a real problem for for Biden, whether whether one believes he caused it or not. Sitting presidents benefit or they don't benefit from inflation up or down. Bob, can you. Tell our listeners what they're in for for the next so six months to a year in terms of the political schedule and what they're going to be seeing and hearing and reading about. We've got trials, criminal trials of Donald Trump. We've got civil trials. It's going to be a focus on the 2020 election. Uh, there's a New York Times poll a couple of days ago that says that Biden and Trump are neck and neck, uh, that it's a dead heat. Uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy is out there. Cornell West is out there. I mean, what are, what are, how do we make sense of all this? Well, if Trump remains in this, if he actually goes into the Republican convention, if, because I've, I've had my doubts, uh, you know, for the I've said that on your show before, but if he does, we're going to have probably the biggest mismatch of, you know, of statistics and polling because even after all his troubles, now I really want to see the numbers now, uh, and I don't live and breathe by polls, but I want to see the numbers on this third indictment because he's had two indictments, civil civil court case, and the bottom line is they are neck and neck. That tells you something. You've also got the Kamala Harris factor too. If Biden has you know a stumble, if some things happen that people start to question his age, and you know then they will go towards Kamala Harris being 
president of the United States, and that is not a win for the uh, – and I'm not trying to be mean here, but that's not a win for the Biden administration. So this is going to be just – I don't know, uh, hold on to your hats for the next six months as long as Trump remains. And if Trump leaves the race, that's a different ball game. Yeah. That'll take its own course. But the arguments and the political um, discussion is going to take a whole new route back into basically substantive issues. Otherwise, it's Joe Biden and his agent, Kamala Harris, or it's Donald Trump and his indictments and or conviction or not. Well, you That's can what we're going to see. You can read the polls or you can do what I do, which is talk to your four children. And yes. the enthusiasm yes. for President Biden is tepid at best. Uh, yes. You know, you, you talk to a, anybody who's in their 20s, 30s or 40s, you get the eye roll, you get the uh, you just sort of they throw up their hands and say, why are these people running this government? I mean, that's what the sort of next generation is saying. And I take that as the evidence for the neck and neck between Biden and Trump. You're right. I call a series of people around the country that I always say they don't have a dog in the hunt. They're, they're pretty independent. Also, my granddaughter, who led the last election in her school, the, the pro-Biden group. All right. Right. And uh, in, a, in a very, very red school. And. uh I've asked her recently, you know, uh, about it, and and the response is interesting because it's like, well, I don't know. So, yes, uh, it tepid is the best word I think that you know you can use that you you said about uh, what people are feeling now. And when you look at this, you say, wow, what a unbelievable election process we're going to have. It's going to be. For, now, here's one other thing I did want to add. The other thing that you really got to worry about in the process and the substance of this. If people really just get turned off, the ones that normally tend to stay out of the process are the independents, by the way. Right. Right. So. Okay, here we go. Strap on your seatbelt. That's, uh, that's it. Popcorn. Bob, Bob Nay, thank you for joining us as always. We'll thank see you. you next week. Thank you. I am back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, the friendly pioneer. And uh, we are going to go right now and talk to Allison Novak of Seven Days about her uh, latest story in that newspaper and on that website. Allison, welcome to the show. Oh, did we lose her? We're wa- we're waiting for Allison Novak from Seven Days. Allison, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? There she is. We got her. Okay. Great. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Tell us about the Alliance Defending Freedom. So the Alliance Defending Freedom is an Arizona-based legal organization that was founded about 30 years ago by a group of Christian leaders um, and has had some very high-profile Supreme Court wins in recent years um, on cases that kind of revolve around um, freedom of speech and, the organization has filed six lawsuits in Vermont with, uh, since 2019, including two in the last month or so. And so, you know, I've written about some of the individual cases that Alliance Defending Freedom has filed in Vermont, but I thought this was a good opportunity to kind of connect the dots and to talk about, you know, what the strategy of this legal organization is and why they are um, so keen to file lawsuits in Vermont. And so tell us about the the two particular cases that they've focused on. 
Sure. So the two that were filed in July, one was on behalf of a snowboarding coach from Woodstock Union High School who was terminated um, in February or March um, after he made some comments about a transgender snowboarding athlete on a different team. Um, And he claims that that termination violated his rights to free speech and due process and is asking that the school district reinstate him. Um, And then the second suit, um, which was filed a week later, um, is quite a different type of suit in that it involves two anti-abortion pregnancy centers in Vermont. Um, There's about seven such centers in the state um, that essentially, you know, provide services like pregnancy tests and ultrasounds, but do not refer for abortions and are, you know, funded by uh, anti-abortion groups, um, and basically they're saying that Vermont recently passed Act 15, which is meant to crack down on deceptive advertising and medical misinformation, um, impedes their ability to provide their services to to women. Allison, what? Why do you think that that a group like this uh, would come to Vermont? Uh, conservative groups don't get a very warm welcome in what I. I've long called the most liberal state in the country. Why would they focus here? Why wouldn't they go to places where they could have a more friendly reception? Well, I think our progressive policies are exactly why they're here. I think the fact that, you know, we in schools um, have a lot of policies protecting transgender students, um, that we are, you know, have have um, passed legislation meant to um protect women's right to choose, um, I think make it fertile ground for these organizations to file suits that might eventually then reach the Supreme Court on appeal and, um, you know, change the landscape around some of these issues. Yeah, I suspect that they would argue that, that um, you know, the, the United States Supreme Court overturning the uh, Roe versus Wade decision, uh, you know, began – that was a that was a long case that began at the lower levels, and you've got to start somewhere. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so, what what do the? I, I see you talk to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a, uh, and 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 the uh, American Civil Liberties Union in uh, Vermont. What did they say about this group? So, I mean, basically, they say that, you know, this is an anti-LGBTQ group. Um, I mean, it's classified as such by the Southern Poverty Law Law Center um, as an anti-LGBTQ hate group, um, and that they're, you know, working to undo legal protections for marginalized communities. Um, And um, the ACLU of Vermont kind of had a similar take that, you know, these this group is kind of working to um, roll back protections that we've worked really hard to cultivate. Yeah, and and I noticed uh, that Attorney General uh, Charity Clark said that she will defend against this lawsuit, but I also noticed with some interest that Phil Scott, the governor, a Republican, given the chance uh, to, to comment for your story, uh, staunchly defended the law that was passed and was confident that, Vermont would prevail. Yep, he was. He was. He basically said that, um, you know, false and deceptive advertising is illegal in Vermont. Um, 
uh, Act 15 is a law meant to prevent that and that he, you know, he staunchly believes that, you know, in women, in a woman's right to choose and that Vermonters, you know, do as well and have made that clear and that, you know, the state will continue to defend that. I, I, you say that in, uh, that that the former Rice Memorial High School principal Lisa Lorenz is is part of um, is part of the group's uh, promotional video. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So that stemmed from a couple of different cases that were filed um, between 2019 and 2022, and those cases um, were um, brought on behalf of Vermont parents who wanted to use public tuition dollars. So because their community didn't have a public high school in Vermont, um, you know, families are entitled to use public money to um, pay tuition at an out of, you know, out of a high school at a, in a different town. And so they wanted to use the public tuition dollars to pay for um, tuition to Catholic schools. And um, Vermont at the time basically said, nope, like we – you can choose other schools, but you can't choose religious schools. And so these families filed lawsuits to try to get, um, be allowed to use public dollars to go towards um, Catholic schools. Um, and, you know, the state ended up settling, the Agency of Education ended up settling with these families. And Dan French issued a memo last fall basically kind of changing the policy in Vermont and saying that, you know, public tuition dollars could not be denied to religious schools. And this came after a Supreme Court decision last year called Carson versus Macon, which had to do with Maine's tuitioning system, which is similar to Vermont's, um, in which the Supreme Court basically ruled that, that a state could not deny public money to religious schools if, if it had a tuitioning system like Maine and Vermont does. Um, and so in this video, yeah, Lisa Lorenz, who is no longer principal of Rice Memorial High School, but was kind of, you know, it's, it's surprising in a way because it's a long five-minute video. It's very slick. It's very well produced. And she kind of, you know, basically says that the state is um, violating um, these families' rights to um, to get their children an education. And she also kind of, you know, makes a plug for Watch more videos of this kind at adflegal.org. And um, so to, to me, it just struck me that, you know, that there are a number of people in Vermont that are kind of, um, you know, helping this organization along. And and there are several lawyers in Vermont that list themselves as, I believe, advisors to the group. Uh, can you tell us who those are and, and did you get to talk to them? So, yeah, so along with having 50 staff attorneys, Alliance Defending Freedom has thousands of what they call allied attorneys all over the country. And those are attorneys you have to, you have to apply to be an allied attorney, but those are attorneys who kind of help identify cases that ADF may be interested in pursuing in different states um, and also kind of serve as like the local counsel in those lawsuits. And so... Um, Anthony Dupree, who's in Virgins, um, is the legal counsel for this newly filed Woodstock um, snowboarding coach case, um, and he was also the local counsel for the very high-profile 
high-profile case that Alliance Defending Freedom filed on behalf of a Randolph father and daughter who sued um, the school district over um, being punished because they um, made comments about a transgender athlete. Um, And then Michael Tierney, um, who's a lawyer for a law firm in Manchester, New Hampshire, Wadley, Starr, and Peters, is the co-counsel on the pregnancy in the pregnancy center suit. So I reached out to both lawyers. Dupree told me that you know all questions should be referred to Alliance Defending Freedom, and I wasn't able to reach Tierney via phone or email. So, and, 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 and last question, Allison. You you quote a Vermont law school professor uh, in a discussion about uh, these lawsuits, saying. There, you know, even if you're right and the lawsuit is frivolous or wrong, sometimes it's just better to settle and pay the money uh, because the cost and the distraction uh, of going through the lawsuit is is worse than actually just writing a check in a settlement. Uh, is mm-hmm. that, do I have that right? Yeah, I think um, in the case of the Randolph Union High School case, you know, they settled that case for um, $125,000, 85,000 of which went to Alliance Defending Freedom. And I think, you know, what what Jared Carter, the law professor, said is that, yeah, like this would be something that the school district would potentially have to spend a lot of money and time and energy on defending, and it would be kind of hanging over the head of the school district. And so in some cases it might just be when doing the cost-benefit analysis um, Easier and better um, to just to just settle it. Uh, do you? Is there any takeaway that that you take away from this story, Allison? That we're missing here. What what uh, you know? You do so much reporting. What's your what's your what do you walk away from this story uh, thinking? So the thing that kind of struck me most is I was able to talk to Alliance Defending. Freedom's head of U.S. litigation, um, David Cortman, and asked him kind of point blank, like, are you planning, like, do you think you'll be filing more lawsuits in Vermont? Um, you know, and he said, yes, we will, especially if um, the legislature tries to restrict public money to religious schools, which is something that the legislature has, you know, tried to do kind of unsuccessfully over the past couple of years and has said they want to continue to try to do. So, In a way, I think that was kind of like, you know, shots fired, you know, like to me, like that he said point blank, like, yep, more litigation is coming, especially if Vermont um, tries to um, curtail um, money going to religious schools, to me was was quite striking. You can find out about this story, uh, which is great, by the way, as always, Uh, Allison Novak. Thank you so much for joining us. You can go to 7daysvt.com, and uh, you can even send Allison an email, allison at 7daysvt.com, in, in reaction to that story. As always, Allison, best to everybody at 7 Days. Thanks very much. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and today we're kicking off a new feature. We talk a lot about books on this show, and I rarely skip a chance to mention my friends at Bear Pond Books in Montpelier or Bridgeside Books in Waterbury or Next Chapter Books in Barry, among others. Our segment is called Short Takes, a quick look at great books to read this summer 
and beyond that are a little under the radar. And to do that, we have my friend Mary Bisbee Beak all the way from Portland, Oregon, home of the great Powell's books. Mary has been a book publicist whose authors have appeared on national, regional, and local shows everywhere. She's also known as the publishing Sherpa, who guides new and aspiring authors through the maze of writing, editing, and actually getting their book published. She's been championing books, independent bookstores, and small publishers in her entire career. And she joins us now from Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Mary. Hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Okay. Um, let's start right in. We This is our new segment. Let's start talking about books that you like and that you've picked out for listeners that they might be able to go get. Terrific. I've, um, I've chosen four books today. Um, one book of short stories, one novel, a book of poetry, and an illustrated book for uh, dedicated and armchair travelers. Um, so I'm going to start with a novel, which um, I thought it was kind of perfect to kick things off with a novel that was published through a local Vermont publisher, Rootstock Books. Um, it's called Blue Desert, and it's by a woman named Celia Jeffries. Um, I was not able to put this book down, and I would suggest that it's perfect for last days of, last days of summer at the beach, the lake, a long flight, or the hammock in your backyard. <laughs> um, the story opens in London um, in the 1970s, and Alice George, the main protagonist here, receives a telegram giving her some surprising news. And what follows in the story is the next week in her life, and it's just jaw-droppingly great storytelling. And, bro- and, and, and brought to us by our friend Samantha Colber at Rootstock Publishing. Absolutely. Um, Samantha was Celia's editor and champion through the production process um, and a wonderful person to work with. You know, I got I to gotta interrupt, Mary, and say this is so refreshing because we spent the first hour of this show talking about the indictment of Donald Trump and – and uh, it's really a relief, especially for a political junkie like me who has to kind of struggle to go find fiction to read. Oh, well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of fiction I've learned over the years is purchased by women. So I'm always really excited when um, a male friend or friend of the author or a reviewer will tell me that, the book that I've suggested, whatever it is, but generally I, I work on a lot of fiction and generally it's a, I'll be recommending fiction to people and they say, that was just an amazing book. And, you know, I'm always taken aback and I just thought this is a great book to start with because it re, it, it, it's enjoyed by people at all levels of reading and, um, men, women, Teenagers, everyone that I know that's picked this book up has loved it. And it's especially, especially loved by people in book clubs. They love discussing this book. So, um, just a little bit more, um, about the story. Alice is a very headstrong young British woman 
and she lived in with the Torogs in North Africa at the time of World War One. And the Torogs, most people know know this. I didn't before I read the book. The Torogs is a tribe of nomadic warriors. Um, they're a matrilineal society in when the me- in which the men are veiled, and the women hold property. A world in which anything can happen, and it was a world well suited to an 18-year-old Alice who discovers a life she could never have lived in corseted England. Mm. I just can't recommend it highly enough. Well, anything British is going to excite, whether it's books, TV, whatever. I don't know. It just seems to sell well, but that sounds like a really compelling story. Oh, great, great. I hope people start looking for it and picking it up. Um, I just have a little sidebar. Um, When I first met and spoke with Celia about her book, um, I asked her about the research for it, and she went, she went on. She talked a lot about you know the the reading that she did, but then she um, got this smile on her face and she said, "Well, I actually traveled to North Africa to learn how to ride a camel so that I could describe it accurately in my book." Oh, so I was really impressed by that. Wow. Okay. All right. Maybe that would be like a skill sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. The second book. Um, is a beautiful, poignant, wonderful, warm uh, book of poetry, and it's called All the Honey, um, and it's by Rosemary, it's M-E-R-R-Y, Watola Tromer, and Rosemary lives just outside of Telluride, Colorado. She's much sought after as a teacher and as a speaker, and I would think everyone that engages with Rosemary, wants to be her friend. Um, She's just got this way about her that when you're talking to her, you have a sense that you are the most important person in her world. And you probably are for those three seconds. Um, But she goes on and does it again and again and again with the next next people that she meets. So um, she's, she's really special and her poems are incredibly special. I talked to her the other day. I was telling her that I was going to mention her book on your show, Kevin. And she had just returned to Colorado from a tour, a quick tour um, in the Bay Area in California. And she was doing private events in people's homes. And there was one event that was advertised to this um, host's friends. And she actually had to add on a second event because her house couldn't fit more than 50 people. And all told, she had about 120 people over the course of two events, which is, you know, if you talk to the people at Bear Pond or any of the bookstores you've mentioned, that's unprecedented for a reading, right. <laughs> and especially by a poet. So right. This is this is just really, really wonderful. Um, the poems deal with a lot of grief and with a lot of... Um, coming back from grief. It's uh, it's very prescriptive if people are going through a tough time. And, um, you know, it might even help some Vermonters with what's been going on with your weather. Um, and I just want to say that living on the, in the Pacific Northwest, we are not um, unused to natural disasters. Right. And, um, you know, our, our hearts have been with you all during the last few weeks. 
Oh, well, thank you. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it just goes on. Um, we are at the beginning of a very long road here. So Rosemary Wetola Trummer's poetry might be just the thing that we need. Yeah, someone said to me, this is a poem. Every poem in this book is a love poem, a song from the heart. And um, I just think that anyone that picks up a copy of this book will adore it. And you can look for Rosemary. She has a podcast uh, on emerging form regarding the creative process. So you could actually engage with her if if you're swept away by her work. Okay, and I see in your notes that she leaves poems on river rocks around her town. Yes, she does. That's just like, that's the essence of Rosemary. You know, she just, in everything she does, there's a little giggle. And I think that she just wants people to, you know, look down and see this and be so amazed that they have to pick it up and read it and hopefully put it in their pocket or maybe put it back for the next person. Mary, what's the next choice the next the next book kevin is um it's a wonderful illustrated book it's called from cairo to beirut in the footsteps of an 1839 expedition through the holy land and the writer and illustrator is a gentleman by the name of sunil shindi and um sunil is many things he's a entrepreneur a businessman a husband a father and a steward to oscar a fabulous golden retriever. And um, he's also, uh, from my point of view, first and foremost, he's an urban sketcher. And urban sketchers, it's a real thing. Um, You can Google it. And um, people that, instead of taking photographs, they take sketchbooks along with them wherever they go on their travels or just running errands or whatever, and they sketch what they see. And that's what Sunil did on this trip. And he was following in the footsteps of a famous Scottish illustrator named David Roberts, who took this exact same trip in 1838. There have been a lot of changes with borders and um, political issues, and uh, Sunil had some uh, good people helping him along the way and some uh, not guard so much, but just um, people making sure that he didn't overstep in any area, um, warning him about possible dangers, of which he probably took very few precautions. He's he's intrepid, um, and he travels, you know, whenever he can all over the world to make these sketches and to tell the story of his travels. So if you're a, a traveler, if you're an armchair traveler. I think you would enjoy this book. I um, am friendly with the founder of Lonely Planet Press and um, a great travel book company. And um, I asked Tony if he would be interested, willing to write a short introduction to the book. And he leapt at the chance because he had made a similar trip um, years, years ago. And um, he was able to really comment on the places that Sunil went and the chances that he took. So you don't get this that great sense of um, fear or potential fear when you're looking at the book, but you just get a great sense of what he saw, caricatures of the people that he encountered, um, uh, 
landscapes, architecture. It's very, very sweet. So I would highly recommend that at the close to summer. And, or, and, and it's an anti- got, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to say, if you've got kids who are starting to think about gap years or doing any sort of traveling, this would be a perfect gift for them. And if you're looking for an antidote to social media and Instagram, this is the polar opposite. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. That isn't to say you won't find Sunil on Instagram, but <laughs> it, it gives you a different sense of how you can explain or talk about your travels through your own illustrations. Mm. Oh, can't wait. Okay. So the last book is... Um, it's a collection of six short stories and a novella from a woman named Judith Saren. And Judith is primarily known as a poet. Um, and the book is called Gravity. And it's about women. What we want, don't want, what we think we want, but maybe don't. Um, it's lyrical, it's surreal, um, and it's a dive through the psyches of female characters. Um, some of them are slightly mad and some of them are a bit too sane. Um, they're image busters. And um, there's something about the way Judith puts words onto the paper where she always, she'll tell you the story, but she always brings you back to earth. So you can't get too lost. It's not a fearful book, um, but it's, it's um, just a great take on feminism right now. Uh, Mary, these, it's funny, before you came on, my colleague here at the station, Kaya Winchell, uh, told me that she read a novella over the weekend, and this was a new genre for her, so maybe you can tell us more about novellas. Novellas are great, because they're a little bit more than short stories, and they're a little bit less than a full novel, so if you, if you have a time constraint, a novella is where you want to go because, um, you know, with a novel, that's a, sometimes a huge investment of time. And time is at a premium for everybody these days. So I I frequently talk to people about novellas. And um, you have to be a pretty um, adept writer to be able to get everything into a novella without it feeling overburdened or overcrowded. And um, I I also think that uh, a lot of people who teach writing and who teach English use novellas because you can can go through several of them in the course of a semester or a quarter and um, get many points of view, many different stories. Okay. So to review... Blue Desert by Celia Jeffries, All the Honey by Rosemary Watola Trummer, From Cairo to Beirut by Sunil Shindi, and Gravity by Judith Saren. What a list. I hope so. I hope everyone enjoys all of these, or at least one of them. There's a little something for everybody here. <laughs> Mary, uh, you seem to know uh, either the people who publish these books or the people who wrote them. Uh, tell us just a little bit more about yourself and your multi-decade career in this business. Sure. Um, I I pride myself on being the consummate networker, um, and 
I will think nothing of picking up the phone and trying to talk to someone to get a little better sense of who they are and why they've written what they've written or why they do what they do. Um, I've been around publishing for 40 plus years. I married a man who was in publishing for about 40 plus years. Um, and so our kind of our combined Rolodexes or um, um, aging myself by using ro- the word Rolodex, but database, um, it was pretty exhaustive. And, um, you know, I just, I know a lot of people in the industry and I'm always tickled to meet more people in the industry. And there's nothing that I love more than putting a book into someone's hands or talking to them. I mean, this, to me, this situation is golden. I'm reaching lots of people. Um, but, and I, you know, I love to hear back from people about what they're, what they're reading, what they have loved about recommendations that I've made. Um, I love to find out how people find the books. Um, I've done a, a little, a few cup, few tours of duty in bookstores as a bookseller, and um, it's it's really fun to walk around the store with someone and say, "Oh well, if you like this, let's try that. Um, this could be your next great read." And I don't even get too peeved at the person that comes in that says, "I heard a." author on fresh air but i don't remember the title of the book (laughs) so we search for it um or gee last week there was a book on this table and it was red it's not here now can you help me with that okay you're describing me Uh, this is the this is a a weekly (laughs) occurrence when i go into bear pond books and i say to uh claire the owner uh you know there's I don't know. It's about a politi- politician and uh, World War II, and so it. We, but we get there. We get there. Great, great. Um, and you must have a great. You must have a great collection of Winston Churchill books. <laughs> I do, and uh, I. But I'll tell you, we are vis-a-vis our uh, conversation about novellas. I, I went to see Oppenheimer recently because I'm. I'm a bit of fan of a bit of a fan of that story, and I. Then went to the bookstore and picked up the book, and it it's pretty darn heavy. Uh, the 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 book uh, American Prometheus about Oppenheimer. So I, I'm not sure that I'm going to do it. I think I might detour into Blue Desert by Celia Jeffries, and so that we can then have Sam Colber on the show and talk about it. That'd be great. That'd be great. I bet you could even have Celia on the show. Well, there you go. It's one of the great things about. A local publisher, uh, Sam. We have a little. Uh, it's the way Deep Throat used to deal with Bob Woodward. She she leaves me books at a predetermined location, kind of secretly, and then I I pick them up and read them, and we have the author on the show. So, uh, oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> uh, Good, Mary Bisbee Beak. Uh, this is a great start to our segment called Short Takes. And I know that we'll be back uh, next month with a with another selection. So thank you for joining us. It's been really fun, Kevin, and um, I can't wait for next month. Oh, by the way, if you want to find out more about Mary Bisbee Beak, just Google her. But she does have an email, which is mbisbee.beak at gmail.com. That's on her website, uh, and uh, you can find out more about Mary, who's been all over the world. Mary, thank you. We'll see you next month. Okay, can't wait. Take okay. care. Thanks, right. Kevin. Mary Bisbee Beak, uh, 
all about books. That, that woman knows more about books and more about the people who publish books and write books than anybody I've ever seen. So this will be fun. Well, that is our show for today. Uh, my thanks to our guests, Jerry O'Neill, Bob Nay, uh, Allison Novak from Seven Days, and Mary Bisbee-Beak. If you want to be a guest on the show or send us a suggestion for a topic, drop me a line. This show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com. And, of course, you can always listen live to the show. I am here Wednesdays and Fridays. You've got Brad Furland on Mondays, and you've got Pat McDonald on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You can find me at KevinKLS.com, where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. I have a podcast also called Conflict of Interest that examines a lot of the issues we have on this show. I'll be back Wednesday, and where we're going to directly broadcast live remote from Barry at Bob's Ace Hardware in Barry. We're going to talk about the flood with everybody in downtown Barry. I'll be in the field, as we did in Montpelier this week. As always, we'll talk politics in Vermont and the nation. My garden, my basement that is almost dry, and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by... Not Danny McGivigan, but Greg Titus and all the folks at WDEV. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next Wednesday on VT Viewpoint Live Radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.